All right. Ready for this? I've been preaching for weeks. That means that I have extra energy. <laughs> and the reason why I start with that is because the passage we're looking at today is a bit confrontational. And the problem when you combine the confrontational words of Jesus with someone that has not preached for four weeks is that this could go south super fast. So by the end of the sermon, you are offended. It was not Jesus, it was me. But if you get offended well, then that was Jesus, and he will offend you because he wants the best for you. The text that we just read today is an important text because Jesus is going to make a distinction between authentic Christianity and nominal Christianity. He's going to make a distinction between a true believer and a religious person. He's going to make a, a distinction not between a non-believer and a believer, but between a person that really, really believes in Jesus and someone that is just a religious person. That's why he's going to talk about four things. He's going to talk about two ways, two fruits, two wills, and two foundations. And his argument is going to be that we only get two options. Either it's going to be Jesus or it's going to be something else. That we don't get to, work, to worship Jesus and worship something else. That you could only worship one God at a time. Either Jesus or something else. He's also going to tell us that we don't get to be neutral. That if you don't worship Jesus, it's because you are worshiping something else. That if you don't follow Jesus, it's because you are following something else. Now, to modern ears, this sounds a little bit narrow-minded. Not very inclusive. And I think that they're right. And if that's your case, I just want to invite you to see and hear why is it that Jesus speaks this way? Because his motives are right. And because he knows what you need best. So I need you to do me a favor. Because this is going to get super confrontational super fast. I need you to do me a favor. Could you please look at the person next to you and say something like this. Get ready. This is about to get real. Go ahead. I didn't say that, you said it. <laughs> Let's go with the first point, two ways. Jesus, right from the beginning, which is the last part of this section of the Sermon on the Mount. Actually, today we're finishing the last section of the second part of the Gospel of Matthew, the way we have divided in our journals. And this is the last part of the Sermon on the Mount. Uh, Jesus here is going to use this metaphor in verses 13 and 14, he says this, enter through the narrow gate, and verse 14 says, but small is the gate and narrow the road that leads to life, and only a few find it. It is because of this verse that people may feel that Christianity is a little bit restrictive. And I would say that they are right. I actually think that Jesus says that Christianity is restrictive. Actually, the, the root of the word narrow means confined or restrictive. 
So the idea is that Jesus is putting us, if you will, in a very restrictive space. But I want to make the argument that that is not the primary reason why Jesus uses the word narrow in the text. Actually, the root of the word narrow also means to groan. So what does Jesus have in mind when he's using the word narrow here? It means this. That to follow Jesus is difficult and is costly. Can you say difficult and costly? Let me say it again. That to follow Jesus is difficult and costly. That he's going to require something from you. That is not going to be an easy road. That is not going to be a walk in the park. That is going to require something difficult from you. Now, there's two questions that I want you to ask, though. Why is it that Jesus said, why is it that Jesus is saying that to follow him and to follow his way and to follow this narrow road is difficult if Jesus already, if Jesus also says, my yoke is easy and my burden is light? Is Jesus contradicting himself? Why would he say one thing here and later on he says he's going to say something else? The other question I want you to ask is, if Jesus is saying that to follow him is difficult and costly, why is it that thousands upon thousands of people continue to follow Jesus, living for Jesus, and dying for Jesus? Isn't Jesus contradicting himself? The question remains, why would Jesus say that to follow him is difficult and costly? Let me put it simple. I don't think that Jesus is saying that because of something he is or because of the things he demands from you. I do not think that when Jesus says this, he's saying this because he's complicated. I want to remind you that one of the descriptions about Jesus in the New Testament is that he's gentle and lowly. And that when the Bible talks about his laws, he says, your laws are my delight. So if there's something that is difficult about Christianity, and costly about Christianity, is not because of Jesus and what Jesus requests from us. Listen up, church. The reason why this is difficult and costly is because of who you are and what you have in your heart. What makes it difficult for me to live Christianity at times is because of who I am and what I have in my heart. See, I, I know that this is not your case, so let me speak about my case. Sometimes I have a hard time denying myself. If you don't believe me, just ask my wife. Sometimes I could be driven more by my desires and my feelings than my convictions. Sometimes you want to be God. Sometimes you want to have the God of your own imagination. Sometimes I have a hard time placing my hope in him. Sometimes it is easier for you to place your hope in something else which that's what the Bible calls idolatry. 
What makes it difficult to follow Jesus, what makes it costly to follow Jesus, is not because of him or what he demands of us. It's because of me and what I have in my heart. So stop blaming Jesus. This is one of the, what, uh, what one of the scholars said. There is no room for me to set my opinions against the Lord's. No room to set my goals in any way at cross purposes to his. No room to form attachments that compete with the central place the Lord Jesus must have. The problem is not with him. The problem is me. You guys ever watch the movie Sleeping with the Enemy? I hope you didn't. <laughs> but if you did, what matters there is the title. You always sleep with the enemy. And it's not your spouse. It's you. It's me. And people hear this and say, well, there's nothing appealing about Christianity in that one. That's only if you read that part. But Jesus says that this is so beautiful. And what Jesus is calling us to, to walk this narrow road, this narrow gate, is because that road leads to life. Now, the word life is so beautiful. It's an important word in the scriptures. Because I think that when Jesus is talking about this, he's not just talking about future life in heaven. Which that's also implied there. But when Jesus uses the word life, Zoe in the original, beautiful name, means life here in the present. You experience life in a different way. Even if things go wrong, you feel alive. Even if you are struggling, you feel substance. Even if anything and everything goes wrong, there is a purpose for your existence. Christianity is not just about existing and about surviving. It's about having life here and now and much better be after. That's why Jesus promised. This is the reason why people surrender to Jesus. Even if the road is narrow. Even if they lose it all. Is that you? I'm sure that many of you are familiar with Apostle John, uh, one of the disciples of the Apostle John. His name was Polycarp. He was suffering for, for his faith, and right before he's executed, one of the executors asked him to deny Jesus, and this is what, he, what an 86-year-old man says. 86 years I have served the Lord, and he never did me wrong. How then can I blaspheme my king and my savior? Yes, to follow Jesus is narrow. Yes, to follow Jesus is tight. Yes, to follow Jesus is difficulty, difficult and complicated. But there you find life. Even if you don't have the American dream. Even if you lose it all. Even if you struggle. Even if you die. Substance. Purpose. Life. 
And Jesus says there's only two ways. Either that way or, verse 13 says, the way of the broad road, the wide gate. But notice that Jesus says that that may seem appealing and good, but at the end of the day, that leads to destruction. Do you know why? Because unless you live and continue to live for Jesus, you will destroy, your, destroy yourself. I will destroy myself. Jesus is not requesting this because he wants your life to be miserable. He is requesting this because if not, you will destroy yourself. Have you ever wondered why is it that so many people before passing away, they regret so many things? Because at the end of the day, they realize that everything that has gone wrong in life, most likely, is because of me. There's only two ways. So the question we got to ask is, how do I know if Jesus is my only way? Which leads me to my second point. Two fruits. Now, Jesus here is about is using spiritual leaders as an example for us to see and not imitate. So in verse 15, he says, Watch out for false prophets. They come to you in sheep's clothing, but inwardly they are ferocious wolves. It's super interesting because he's talking about these false teachers that externally and superficially do everything right. And I'll make that clear later on. But inwardly, their motivations are completely wrong. Let me say that again. Here's a group of people that does everything externally good, but inwardly, their motivations are completely wrong. And this, I do not want you to miss, church. It is possible to do everything right with the wrong motivations. And God is not impressed by your well be good behavior. What God goes after is your heart. Because it is from your heart. It is in your heart when you find your motivations. God does not care much about the things you do necessarily. He cares more about the things that why you do what you do. The outcome of your life will eventually match the motivations of your heart. Your fruit it flows from the motivation of your heart. Eventually, the true colors always come out. You know where I get that from? Verses 16 through 18. By their fruit, you will recognize them. Likewise, every good tree bears good fruit, but a bad tree bears bad fruit. A good tree cannot bear bad fruit, and a bad tree cannot bear good fruit. Can you see what he says? When the motivations are wrong, eventually, true colors come out. Motivations matter. 
Can you say that with me? Motivations matter? Motivations really matter. If there's a criticism that I have about the American church, and I'm American, just so you know. Latin America, that's America. One of the criticisms that I have about the American church is that we tend to focus so much on behavior modification that we miss the heart. And when we miss the heart, we miss motives. If you don't think that's true, how many of you guys are parents? So I'm going to make you feel, make you feel guilty just for a second. Because I feel guilty. And I don't want to suffer alone. The tendency is to focus much more on modifying the behavior of our kids than going after your, their hearts. You know what I've done, and I continue to do every now and then what I forget? I try to modify the behavior of my daughters with two things that are super effective. But that none of them had the power to change their hearts. Fear and pride. You know how I do it? How many of you guys are guilty, feeling guilty already? Okay, just wait. It's going to get better. We try to modify kids' behavior by threats. So, for example, I realized, Heidi and I realized that the best way for us to uh, cultivate the fear of God in them is by taking the phone away. You should see their reaction. Listen, they're in their trip, so we could talk about teenagers all day long, right? But we, you should see their reaction when I say, if you don't behave, I'm going to take the phone away, fear. And their reaction is like if I just told them that they're going to hell. They're like, no! I it works. But that doesn't change their heart. And the second is pride. If you behave, you'll do good in life. If you behave, you're going to be someone. And yes, they may be do good in life. And yes, they may be someone, but the heart completely away from God. See, modifying the behavior doesn't work, and that's not, that's not what Jesus is doing. See, the problem with these people, with these religious leaders, with these false prophets, is that they do everything right. They behave well, and I will show it to you later on. But their hearts, the motivations of their hearts is completely off. And I'm going to give you two examples, one that comes from real life, and one that you find in the Bible, which is also real life. The first one comes from this study that is um, trying to figure out why is it that struggling couples, when one of them is struggling and the other one is doing well, why is it that when they come to a place when everything gets fixed, the, the helper eventually walks away? Which doesn't make any sense. Right? So we got someone on this end that is struggling, and then you got someone that is here helping, and they help and they help and they help, and finally this person changed. But one, once everything goes well, they split apart, and it's usually the helper that walks away. 
So these researchers are trying to figure out what's going on, and this is the gist of it. This is their conclusion. The reason why this happens a lot is because the motivation of the helper was not to love their spouse, was not to help their spouse, but was to save their spouse. The motivation of the heart was to feel needed. It's this complex of being a savior. But once you save someone or fix someone, then you have permission to walk away. Don't you think that's sad? Motivations matter. Motivations matter. The second thing comes from the Bible. And I'm sure many of you guys are familiar with the story of Balaam, which is a prophet found in the book of Numbers, starting in chapter 22. And just to give you context, the Israelites are taking uh, over the lands in the, in the, uh, over the lands, and they are growing in number to the point that all the surrounding uh, uh, nations are super worried because they're taking over everything. And there's one king, the king of the Moabites, that is terrified by looking at what the Lord is doing with the Israelites, and he tries to hire this prophet Balaam to come and curse the Moabites, uh, the Israelites. So he calls them and he says, I need you to do me a favor. I need you to curse these people. Because if you curse them, I know that God is going to hear you and we're going to win. And Balaam responds like a good prophet. I cannot do what you're asking me to do. I would only do what the Lord tells me to do. So Balak comes back a second time and says, I need you to curse these people. And if you curse these people, I'm going to give you tons of money. I'm going to give you all silver, all gold. I'm going to make you rich. To which he responds, the prophet responds, no, I can't do that. I'm only going to do what the Lord tells me to do. He actually goes as far as to say, even if you empty your palace and you give me everything you have, I, can't go against, I cannot go against God's will. He comes back a third time. He says, why are you denying yourself of this reward? Curse the Israelites. And he repeats the same thing. He says, I could only do what the Lord tells me to do. They go up to a, a mountain. And him, instead of cursing the Israelites, he blessed the Israelites. And the story kind of paused there for a second. If you keep on reading... That's why you got to keep on reading, people. If you keep on reading, you get to Numbers chapter 31. Nine chapters later. And the Israelites are destroying the Moabites. And among the people they killed, you find someone. Balaam. You find the very prophet that blessed the Israelites. And the question you got to ask is, why was that man among the Moabites? See, the Bible tells us that even though externally he blessed the Israelites, internally he found a way to curse them because he was in love with silver and gold. You know what he did? Super smart. He knew that the Israelites, the male Israelites, knew how to handle weapons well. But he also knew that they didn't know how to handle their passions and desires. So you know what, what the advice was? Tell the Moabite woman to seduce the Israelite males 
so they will not be loyal to the Lord. And they did. That's crazy to me. That's actually, for me, it creates the, this fear inside. Because it tells me that I'm capable of, of doing everything right. I want my heart to be far from God. It is possible for you to do everything right. And your motives to be completely wrong. And what Jesus says is that the outcome of our lives eventually will match the motivations of our hearts. By their fruit, you will recognize them. Why would Jesus call us to think about this? Because he doesn't want you to be naive about you behaving well. Behaving well does not mean that your heart is in the right place. Your motives matter. Your motives matter. So if the way, one of the ways in which you know if Jesus is your way is by observing and analyzing your fruit. And if you know that your fruit is right by the motivation of your heart, then the following question has to be, how do we change or how do we know if our motivations are right? So this leads me to point number three, two wheels. So remember, remember when I told you at the beginning of this sermon was about to get confrontational? It's not confrontational just yet. This is where it gets confrontational. Because Jesus is going to say that if we are not careful, we could do exactly the same thing that these prophets did. And this is where I'm going to explain why is it that I continue to use the phrase, they did everything right. Look at what it says in verse 21. Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven, but only the one who does the will of my Father who is in heaven. I'm going to explain the first part of the verse, and then I'm going to come back to the second part of the verse. But when Jesus is talking about these people, these false prophets, these religious leaders, he's saying that they have the quality and the ability to say, Lord, Lord. Now, have you ever read your Bible? You know that whenever the Bible uses these repetition of words, that means intensity. Meaning that this is people that have the ability and the capacity to speak about God with such a conviction, with such an emotion, with such a um, fire that people would say, wow, they believe what they proclaim. There's more to that, though. In verse 22, he says, many will say to me on that day, judgment day, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name? And in your name drive out demons, and in your name perform many miracles? Look at what he says. These people not only spoke with conviction, but had the right doctrine, the right set of beliefs. They prophesied in the name of Jesus. They were bold and courageous. 
and they had, quote, unquote, enough faith to cast out demons in the name of Jesus. They would even do supernatural things, like performing miracles in the name of Jesus. They did all of that right. But Jesus says that on judgment day, he would say this to them. Verse 23, I would tell them plainly, I never knew you. Away from me, you evildoers. Notice that Jesus doesn't say, you didn't know me. They said, I never knew you. You have to ask the question, what? What? Didn't they prophesy? Didn't they do amazing things? Didn't they cast out demons? I mean, I would love to have that gift. You know how powerful that is? Out in the name of Jesus. That'd be amazing. You know how amazing it'll be that you have the power, if you will, to heal people? And I believe that when we pray, there's people that actually could do it. But that's not for everyone. And these people could do that. Church, is it possible, it's very possible to do everything in the name of Jesus. And to do everything right in the name of Jesus. Listen up. And not do God's will. Isn't that confusing? This is what I think Jesus is saying. You could come to church. You could read your Bible. You could serve. You could worship. And this is the crazy thing. You could even give money. And not do the will of the Father. Because you might be doing all of that. Because you want to. Not because God is asking you to do it. You know what is the test for us as Christians? Do you want to know if you are following the will of the Father? It's super simple, church. It's when his will crosses your will. If the God you have does not cross your will, you are not doing the Father's will. We don't just do the things that we want to do for God. We do the things that God wants us to do for him. Daniel Doriani, which is a scholar from Covenant Theological Seminary, um, I think he says something like this. If you really want to know if you are doing the will of God, pay attention to all those verses that you never underline. That's a good way to put it. D.A. Carson says this, the Father's will is not simply to be admired or discussed or praised or debated. It is done. It is not theologically analyzed nor congratulated for its high ethical tones. It is done. If his will is not crossing your will, you are not doing his will. John is taught, the question is not whether we say nice, polite, orthodox, enthusiastic things to or about Jesus. 
nor whether we hear his words, listening, studying, pondering, and memorizing until our minds are staffed with his teaching, but whether we do what we say and do what we know. In other words, whether the lordship of Jesus, which we profess, is one of our life's major realities. If the will of God is not crossing your will, you might, not, you might be doing everything right except the will of God. I told you this was going to be confrontational. So the question that you got to ask yourself, and I have to ask myself, what areas of my life, in what areas of my life, his will is not crossing my will? I'm thinking about 20,000 examples right now. I could love my wife well. But maybe I'm not, I'm not loving my wife the way she needs to be loved. I could give a lot of money. But maybe I'm not giving as much as God wants me to give. I could serve in many areas, but maybe I'm not serving in the area in which he wants me to serve. I might be doing so many great things in the name of Jesus. While not caring about his name. Listen, I think that we forget. No, 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 no. It's not you, it's me. I think that I forget that the will of God is always good, pleasing, and perfect. That's Romans chapter 12, by the way. I forget that God's will is always good, pleasing and perfect. My problem is that I think I know best. Your problem is that you think you know best. If you don't think that that is true, let me give you an example. How many of you guys are parents uh, for teenagers? Raise your hand. Once again, they're not here, so we could talk about them all day. Some of them. If you are a teenager, you're here, tough luck, buddy. It's just going after you. Don't you love it when you go to your teenagers and you say, don't do this because it's not good for you? Or you say, do this because it's good for you? And they look at you like if you just said the most ignorant thing in life. They're like, that's the expression, the Rodriguez expression. And then they add to it and they said, Papi, you just don't know. And everything inside of me feels like Hulk. It's like. <laughs> now, this is where it gets better. We do exactly the same thing with God. And we forget that his will is always good. It's always good. It's always pleasing, and it's always perfect. He will never ask you to do something, surrender something that at the end of the day is not good, pleasant, and perfect. We must believe that. 
That's how you know that Jesus is your way. That's how your motives are transformed. That's how you live and you surrender your will to him. Question. How do we make that happen? How do we get to that point? And this is my last point. The two foundations. And Jesus here at the end is going to compare these two persons. A wise and a foolish. And he starts with the wise, and he says in verse 24, Therefore, everyone who hears these words of, of, of Jesus and puts them into practice is like a wise man who built his house on the rock. Notice that what he says is that this man is wise, not just because he's wise, but he's wise because he knows where to put his foundation on the rock. And now he's, he's going to tell you why this is so important. Verse 25. Because rain came down, the streams rose, the wind blew and beat against the house, yet it did not fall because he had its foundation on the rock. Don't miss this, church. He says that the life of a Christian is difficult. Not just because of the stuff we have inside, but because there's also things outside, like rain, streams, and winds. This is the job description. This is what it means to live in this broken world. No one gets to escape that. The, the rain falls upon the wise and then upon the foolish. The rain falls upon everyone. The difference, though, is that as the rain comes to you, what keeps you steady is your foundation, the rock. And Jesus is intentional about using this word because he's pointing to him. Listen up. He's going to say that the way we make Jesus our way, the way our motivations are right and he leads to the right fruit, the way we learn to submit our will to his will is when he is our rock, our foundation. This is why the New Testament uses the word rock as one of the names to describe him. But this is the most beautiful thing about this image, is that if you know anything about construction, you know that the house does not hold on to the foundation. It is the foundation that holds on to the house. That's why we sang what we sang at the beginning, you know, and we didn't even talk about this. Because what makes Christianity so amazing it's not what we do. It's what Jesus does. You know, J.I. Packer, which is a theologian, uh, in one of his last books, he's talking about a situation that he has with his wife. She's starting to lose her memory. And one of her concerns is that she, she's afraid of not remembering Jesus. Which is a beautiful concern. But J.I. Packer, like a good theologian, says, what he tells her, what matters most is not, that, is, is not whether you remember Jesus. What matters most is that Jesus will never forget you. I could change that a little bit. What matters most is not how you hold on to Jesus. What matters most is how Jesus holds on to you. He is your foundation. He is your rock. But there's more. The, you, the, the way you make Jesus your way 
the way your motivations change so you have the right fruit, the way you learn to submit your will to his will, is not just having Jesus as your foundation that is holding on to you, but to remember that that rock already got the storm that you deserved. See, he got the rain, he got the wind, and he got the beating. But not because of something he did, but because of what we did. He got the storm of the wrath of God. He took our place so we could be in his place. He took our punishment so we could be forgiven and accepted. He took what we deserve so we know that nothing can separate us from the love of Jesus, of God in Jesus Christ. So we know that even if we sin, that even if we struggle, that even if things get complicated, Jesus does not walk away. He holds on to you and does not walk away. That's Christianity. And that's what changes your life. Do you want to see if the will of God is good, perfect, and pleasing? Look at the cross of Jesus Christ. Look at the one that is preaching the sermon and later on will die in a cross. Isn't his will good, pleasant, and perfect? It was the, it was the Father's will for Jesus to die in that cross. So the question for you is, why wouldn't you choose him? Why, why wouldn't you want your motivations to be right? Why wouldn't you surrender your will to him? Why wouldn't you choose life? So I don't know where you are in your walk with the Lord, but I tell you this. If you're already a Christian... Choose life and continue to choose life. And if you're not a Christian yet, choose life. Choose life. I guarantee you that you won't regret it. Let's pray. Lord, my prayer for me and for this congregation, Lord, is that we choose you. That you are truly the best way. That the benefits of following you are truly the best benefits. That even though we have to, even though we have to recognize that so many things go wrong with this world, and most likely things go wrong with us, help us choose you because that is the only way, Lord, that we know that you will hold on to us and you will never forget about us. Lord, we don't have faith in our faith. We have faith in you. Would you please change our motives? Would you help us please surrender our will? Would you please help us find abundant life? even if we lose it all. And we pray in the name of Jesus. And we all say...